Well, why don't you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3 this morning. Mark chapter 3. And I mentioned the, the football season just a minute ago. And seeing that the, the regular football season is over, have any of you heard of Black Monday? I think you all know what Black Friday is, the shopping day, but Black Monday. Black Monday is the grimmest day in professional football. It's because every year the regular season of NFL football ends on a Sunday, the last Sunday game of the year. And some teams make the playoffs, some don't. Usually as a reflection of those teams that don't make the playoff, on the day after the last day of the season, several coaches get fired. And this happens very next day, Monday morning, bright and early. A lot of coaches lose their job, and it's become known now as Black Monday. And talk about not wasting any time. The trend in recent years is for more and more coaches to be fired after shorter and shorter stints in office. Last year, eight head coaches lost their job. This year, seven. One lost his job after just one year. And talk about not a lot of time to prove yourself. But owners are just interested in quick results. The effects of these firings is far-reaching because the head coach is not the only person who loses his job. Head coaches come with their own entourage of personal assistants, and they all lose their jobs as well. And then you have dozens of assistant coaches who are usually tied to the hip to the head coach. And when he goes, they're left waiting to see if the new guy is going to like them and need them. Most of them not, and so they're going to lose their jobs as well. In the end, with each new head coach, the entire leadership of the organization changes. It's, just, it's like a changing of the guards. This is the chance to bring in an entirely new leadership style into your group, a new way of doing things with the hope that this change will bring about some success. Well, in an interesting way, what we find in Mark chapter 3, it's, it's, it's similar. It's kind of like a, a, a Christ's own changing of the guards, this new leadership team that's going to change everything. We finally come to the passage in Mark where Jesus chooses 12 of his disciples to be the 12. He calls them in an official capacity to be his representatives. And when you read this passage, you may not think anything of it. I think it's pretty straightforward. Okay, Jesus chooses 12 guys to follow him around. Okay, it seems straightforward. But as always, something far more significant is taking place here. Just remember this. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. What did he come to do? In part to announce the coming of the kingdom. To whom did he first announce this mission? Well, to the Jews, notably the Jewish leaders. And so who, if any, would you expect to be jumping for joy at the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom? Well, the Jews, and especially the Jewish leaders. But that's not what happens. The leaders, the religious establishment, they they turn on him. They don't accept him, rather they reject him. They, they hate him. We've already seen in Mark chapter 2 the rising tide of opposition to Jesus from the scribes and the Pharisees. We find the same opposition from the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, that's like the ruling council, the high priest. Every level of Israel's spiritual leadership has rejected him and they will all unite together to kill him. And this is a problem. Part of Christ's work, an important part, is to start something new, a new community of God's people. It's called the church. Like Ephesians 2 says, this is a body where Jew and Gentile come together into what? Into one new man. 
And Jesus aims to reach the entire world through this church. To do this, he needs leaders. Jesus is the head of the church, we know that, but his mission on earth was going to be short. He knew that as well. And so he needed some boots on the ground, some, some men to lead this church after he's gone on earth to lead people in worship and in reaching the lost. So who is the natural choice to lead this new movement? Who's the natural choice? Well, seems like Israel's current leaders. Who's currently leading the show? They seem like they'd be a good choice. And just look how seemingly qualified these guys are, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. I mean, their resumes are stacked. They have years of experience. They know the Old Testament really well. They already lead the synagogue and temple worship, and they're already accepted by the people as leaders. I mean, it seems like they're the natural choice. They, they would just fit right in. But they would make for a bad choice. Because not only do they reject Jesus, but they reject God. They don't say that, of course, but they do. On the inside, they are spiritually dead. They claim to know God, but they do not truly worship or know him. Outside, they try as hard as they can to appear holy, but inside, they're just they're dead. They've never been changed, born again. They don't know God. Worse yet, they're actual opponents to the truth. They favor their own traditions and rituals over God's own word. So these, this is not who you want as leaders of your new startup. They're the ones who had led Israel so far astray to begin with. So Jesus recognizes the need for new leadership. There needs to be a changing of the guard. Israel's leadership has utterly failed and fallen short. They've rejected the Messiah and the kingdom will be taken from them. And so if the church is going to have any chance, humanly speaking, of course, before Jesus does anything else, he must establish new leaders. Truly godly, qualified leaders are needed. This is his task. This is why he's choosing the 12. And it's no coincidence that not a single one of them comes from the religious establishment. Among the twelve, there's not one scribe or Pharisee or priest or Sadducee. None are included in his new team. And so what you really need to recognize, the significance here, is that his choosing of the twelve is actually an implicit rejection of Israel's existing leadership. His choosing of these 12 is really a rejection of Israel's current leaders. Earlier in Mark chapter 3, we saw how they conspired to kill him. Later in Mark chapter 3, we're going to see how they claim he's possessed by the devil. They, it's clear, they have rejected him. And so he, in turn, is rejecting them. And instead, we're introduced now to the twelve. And this passage, it's not just a simple list of 12 names. Among this selection, there are many lessons to learn on leadership, discipleship, the mission of the church. You know, like I said, on first reading, you see this, you think it's nothing that special, rather straightforward, but there is more going on here with this seemingly insignificant group of 12 guys. They would go on to turn the world upside down, like it says in Acts. They, they just, they turn the world on its head. 
how do they do this? How do they have such an impact, these ordinary guys? And what we come to find is it's not so much about who they were or what they could bring to the table, how special they were. Rather, it's, it's really about who their Savior was and what he could do through them and who he could make them into. You find the same true today for all of his disciples. Let's go ahead and read our passage now and see what we have here. Mark chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 19. Mark chapter 3, look at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we're just going to make our way through this passage little by little and see what we see. Starting off with this, the setting. Let's just start with, with this, number one, the setting. Again, verse 13, he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. Briefly here, the setting is a mountain. Rather, the mountain, it's a definite place being spoken of. We don't know where. Some have suggested this place called the Horns of Hattin. That's the most prominent peak on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. But when you hear mountain in the Holy Land, don't be thinking like Mount Everest or like a real big mountain. What they call mountain, we would call like a glorified hill. It's not like you don't need you know ropes or anything like that. Either way, peaks or mountains were often associated with God meeting his people. He often summoned his people to his presence on a mountain, like with Israel, calling them out to assemble before him on Mount Sinai. Here on this mount, Jesus is calling out his own people. Now, we're not going to turn there, but the Gospel of Luke gives us some more details. This is the parallel passage on this. And we learn that Jesus, he first went up this mountain alone the night before. And you remember what he did? He prayed. The entire night before, he pulled a prayer all-nighter the night before this selection on the mountain alone. And I've pulled many all-nighters for all my studies back in the day, but it seems pretty hard to pull a prayer all-nighter. I don't know if any of us here have done that, but he goes up this mountain to pray the entire night. And what's he praying for? He is seeking the Father's will in the choosing of the Twelve. And he always seeks to do the Father's will and accordingly prays, rightly so. The next morning when day comes, he goes and he calls his disciples. And Luke actually lets us know there's a larger group here, not just the twelve, there's a larger group of disciples. And among them, he calls out of that group twelve to be the twelve, to be apostles. The word apostle, apostolos, simply means messenger, one who is sent. And these twelve became Christ's special hand-picked delegates or representatives. Just as a side note, Luke also lets us know that right after the choosing of the twelve, on this mountainside, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. 
He was met there by that larger group of disciples. And then the crowds came. And that's when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Mark doesn't mention the Sermon on the Mount, so we're going to move on. But that's the setting of our passage. It's, it's on this mountainside after an all night of prayer. So you know this selection that Jesus is going to make, it's not done without some thought and some consideration. This is, this is purposeful what's about to happen, very purposeful. So first we see the setting. Secondly, now the summons. Secondly, the summons, again from verse 13. He went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. So like Luke said, in his gospel, there's a larger crowd. Jesus selects from among them 12, and his selection is unmistakable. God's will has been revealed. He knows who to choose, and and he chooses. His will in the matter is, is very clear. It's emphatic. He himself chooses the ones he wants. Only those whom he willed were called. It's his initiative, his call. He's not searching for volunteers. He is appointing these men to follow him. They don't choose him. He chooses them first. Like he said later, John 15, verse 16, Jesus said to the 12, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Now the 12 respond to the call, but only after they have been first called. They willingly come to Jesus, but they move only after he moves. And not on accident do we find here the pattern for all discipleship. The twelve, they were special in one regard. They were made apostles, these specific, special delegates and representatives of Christ. And that's not us, that's just them. But before they were the apostles, they were just disciples. And in that, they really model for us discipleship. They're in many ways the pattern of our discipleship. They show us what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like? And here we learn from them, how does that happen? How does a person come to the point of following Jesus and being his disciple? And we learn from them, still today, it starts with his divine summons. God, through Christ, draws people to himself. You still have to answer. You still must respond. You must go to Jesus. But like a super magnet in a paper clip, his call is irresistible. Last week I referenced John chapter 6. Jesus speaks to the crowd after the feeding of the 5,000. That chapter has a lot to teach us about discipleship. I want us to peek over there again because there's more to see, especially when it comes to how discipleship starts. So just you know, keep a finger in Mark and just turn over to John chapter 6 real quick. And let me show you this. I want you to see this firsthand, John chapter 6. It's a familiar passage. I hope you get familiar with it because here, in a really unique way, as Jesus teaches this crowd, He presents the sovereignty of God in salvation and the responsibility of man in salvation right next to each other. And in the same breath, he teaches these two truths, and they stand side by side. If you want to be saved, just go to Jesus. Just believe. Anyone who believes will be saved. That's true. That's what he says. But 
The only people who will actually do this are those who are first called by God behind the scenes. That is true as well. Just listen to some of these just back-to-back statements by Jesus. John chapter 6, starting at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes will never thirst. Who's the one who will never thirst? The one who believes. He who believes. But just a couple verses later, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So now who comes? Well, the ones that the Father gave. Look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. Okay, good. This is God's will. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. It's it's very parallel here. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's two verses. They're in the same breath, back to back, and they're identical except that middle part. Who is the one who who is going to be raised up on the last day? Well, it's all those that the Father has given. But in the very next breath, it's all those who believe, everyone who believes. Lastly, look at verse 44. Here, as he, gets, as he gets near the end, it just gets clearer and clearer. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's pretty clear. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But, just a, another sentence later, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Just just believe. This teaching confuses some people more than it really ought to. Because it's rather plain in Scripture. Anyone who goes to Jesus in true faith will be saved. If anyone eats of the bread of life, he will live forever. That's what he said later. From our perspective, that's it. It's as if it's entirely up to us. We don't know. So from our perspective, it's anyone. Anyone can be saved through our eyes. But behind the scenes, at the end of the day, the only people who will actually go to Jesus are those who have been first called. You may think you're volunteering, but in a way unknown to you, you're actually being summoned. In a similar manner now, you can turn back to Mark chapter 4. Jesus here summons the twelve from among the crowds to follow him. He calls them to himself to be his disciples. Only for the twelve, they were given a special task. In some regards, they model for us the pattern of all disciples, but in other regards, they were unique. Here, let's look at, thirdly now, their task. Seeing the setting, the summons now, switching gears a little bit, the task. Thirdly, the task. Look at verse 14, back in Mark chapter 3. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out the demons. So what is Jesus doing with the twelve? He's not just looking for a group of assistants. 
Rich people, they often like to hire a, a whole army of personal assistants to do their, their small chores, their dirty work, their things for them. Jesus is not just looking to build a team of personal servants. Powerful people like to build an entourage of yes-men. People who just follow them around, say yes to their every suggestion, just build up their ego, make them feel good. And Jesus is not interested in just building a group of yes-men. Rather, he's looking to multiply himself. Look at, look at all these people. Thousands and thousands of people were streaming to Jesus. They all had needs. There's so much ministry to be done. He's just one person. So why not multiply himself? And that's what he's doing. And even more so, Jesus knows how this story is going to end. He knows that his ministry on earth, it's going to be relatively short. And then he's gone. He knows he does not have time to personally visit and impact everyone in Israel, let alone everyone on the planet. So this work of reaching the lost, who's going to do it after he goes? Someone's going to have to do it. It, This work needs to be carried on. And this is why he is reproducing himself and making disciples. Really, though, he's not just making disciples. He's making disciple makers. These 12, when they come to him, he's going to turn them from disciples into disciple makers, and they will go out. And they will make disciples. And here we are today. Does that ever strike you? It's the amazing, the remarkable fact of the church today. I mean, think about this. Here we are, 2,000 years later, 7,500 miles away. And we are disciples of the same Jesus. I mean, how did this happen? How's that possible? Of course, we know God is is responsible, but it's just remarkable to think about what he accomplished first through a group of 12. I mean, if they gave up, Jesus dies, resurrects, goes to heaven, if they just called it quits, they all go back to fishing or tax collecting or whatever, if they gave up, then it's over. Humanly speaking, of course, there would be no church. God's gift of his son to the world would be just lost and forgotten. I mean, it was up to them. That, that's it. They were after Jesus. That They were it. Of course, God is not going to let them let that happen. But nonetheless, it, it's again amazing to see what God accomplished through the 12. Rightly does Ephesians 2.20 say that they are the foundation of the church. With Christ being the cornerstone. Now for these disciples, what was their main task? What was their prime directive? The Great Commission makes it real simple. To make disciples. The simple main mission of the disciples was to make more disciples. That's still true today. We stand in that chain of discipleship. You become a disciple in order to make more disciples. It's not You're not the end of the line. And as Christians, we need to be in that chain, passing what we have received onto the next generation. The twelve, however, were not making disciples of themselves, nor are we. They were making disciples of, of Jesus. I mean, he's the Savior, not, not them. They, they don't have the power to save, nor do we. Rather, our aim is to lead people to the door of Christ that they might enter in. 
for them to accomplish this mission then, if their goal is to make disciples of Jesus, well, it's probably good for them to know Jesus. Don't you think? Probably be a good idea if they got to know Jesus. If they're to be the ones who are entrusted with passing on this testimony of who Jesus is, what he has done, his atonement, his offer of life, if it's up to them, it's probably a good idea if they know this firsthand. And so this is why first and foremost in verse 14, Jesus calls them just to be with him. Just to be with him. And that was their first task, to be with him. Lots of people followed Jesus, but this was special access. This was the backstage pass, the real ticket. Jesus, remember this, he would teach the crowds in parables. Then he would go inside with his disciples and say, here's what it really means to the twelve. He would show the crowds miracles. Then he would take the twelve aside and say, here's what's really going on here. For the next two years, the twelve would not leave the side of Jesus. And as he approaches the end, he would spend less and less time with the crowds and more and more time with the twelve. And the point is, first and foremost, before they could be witnesses of him, they had to witness him. If these are the ones who are going to carry on his testimony, both spoken and then written, they need to know him firsthand. So Jesus first calls them to be with him. Secondly, he calls them so that they could he could send them out to preach. Send them out to preach. The word to send here is a, that's apostolos, the word for apostle. Again, that's all it means, those who are sent, sent to preach. During the life of Jesus, the, the twelve were sent out on occasion to preach to the cities of Israel. This looks forward even to their greater commission where they are to preach to the ends of the earth, the gospel. Remember, that that's how it works. That's how discipleship is supposed to happen, through the preaching of the gospel. Isn't that what Romans 10 says? Romans 10, verses 13 through 15. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him on whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? When you read that, when you hear preacher, don't think me or a pastor. I mean, that, that just think every disciple. You're the preacher. You are to preach and share the gospel. Now here's the thing. As Jesus leaves the apostles, you know, dies, resurrects, ascends, he leaves them behind, and they're tasked with spreading this message, this testimony of Jesus. Why should anyone believe them? Why should people believe them? Now, at this time, there were just scores of little groups and sects and religious organizations, these, these little many religions all around Rome. They all had their version of the truth. So why should why should people believe these 12 guys? Why should they believe them? By what authority do they speak? Well, they speak by God's authority. And to show that, Jesus imparts to them some of his divine authority. And so notably, verse 15, he gives them authority to cast out demons. 
Also, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, which is the parallel, says that Jesus also gave to them his authority to heal every type of sickness. So the apostles are given the same powers that Jesus displayed, his authority over demons and disease. Demons and disease. Now it's important you understand that these were given as signs. These were given as signs. This is not the mission. The mission of Jesus and the apostles was not to heal all sickness and cure the world of all disease. Because if that were their mission, they failed miserably. Their mission was not to cast out all demons and rid the world of all evil. If that were their mission, they, they failed miserably. Now, don't misunderstand me. Jesus is the ultimate answer to evil, both spiritually, physically. He has overcome all demons and spiritual forces and disease and death. He is the answer to demons and disease. We know that. And for those who believe in him in the life to come, you will be freed from sin and Satan and sickness. So don't get me wrong. Jesus is the one who came to right all wrongs, and that includes demons and disease. But don't confuse that with his mission, with their mission. Their mission was very clear. Just make disciples. That's it. Make disciples of Jesus. And remember, how does that happen? By preaching. Right? We just said that, by preaching the gospel. Healing and casting out demons were given as signs of the apostles to authenticate their message in a time before the word. This was their stamp of authority. Here's why you should believe me and not the rest. See the signs. In fact, that's exactly what 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12 says. Paul says to the church, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. Okay, so this is the signs of a true apostle. What are they? 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you by signs and wonders and miracles. They're the signs of a true apostle. Hebrews 2.4 says the same thing. God was testifying to the world through the apostles. How? By signs and wonders and various miracles. Again, these are the signs of the apostles so that they too could testify that the kingdom of God was present in Jesus. This was uh, simply part of their unique role in laying the foundation of the church. God gave to them uniquely some of his special authority. Now, speaking of being unique, I think it's time we took a look at these 12 men themselves now. So let's turn and, and see the 12. We've seen the setting and the summons. The task, now the twelve. Now let's look a little more closely at the twelve. This list of the twelve comes in verses 16 and through 19. It's tempting to spend a lot of time here, maybe devote an entire sermon to each one. Just get to know them better, but we're not going to do that. Mark just presents them in summary fashion. Most of them never show up again in Mark, actually. And we're just going to summarize as well. Let me just give you some basic info about the 12 and some overall observations about the whole group. Now, one thing you'll learn is, is that in Mark's list, he gives a lot of nicknames. His, na- his list is full of nicknames. 
This perhaps resembles the personal touch of Peter, who was the informant for Mark's gospel. In the Bible, in the New Testament, there are four lists of the twelve apostles. Matthew chapter 10, Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 6, Acts chapter 1. And of these four lists, Mark has the most nicknames. Also, when you look at these four lists, you find that they can the twelve disciples can be broken up into three groups of four. That's the best way to remember, to kind of pick them apart, understand them. Three groups of four. And these three groups of four, they're always the same. They always go together. The first starts with Peter. Peter is actually at the start of every list. He's the first one on every list. And he's followed by Andrew, James, and John. That's our, our first four. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. These are the most prominent disciples, the ones we hear about the most. Only Mark puts Andrew at the end of this first group of four because really it was Peter, James, and John that was the inner circle. Andrew was left out a little bit. These four were all fishermen. Simon and Andrew were brothers. Remember studying them back in Mark chapter 1. They lived in Bethsaida. They moved to Capernaum because they wanted to get their fishing business going. And that's where they encountered Jesus. Andrew actually encountered Jesus first and he brought his brother to Jesus They both became his followers. But as time went on, Peter drew even closer than Andrew. In time, Jesus gave Simon the nickname Peter, Petros, meaning rock. And this name was not so much an indication of who he was at the time, but more an indication of the man he would become. And the the rock-like confession of Jesus as Messiah upon which the church would be built. James and John were also a pair of brothers. They also lived in Capernaum. They also were fishers, but they they worked for their dad. They're kind of riding the coattails of their dad's successful fishing business. But they also encountered Jesus there, and they left the fishing world behind to become fishers of men. Now here we see another nickname, but it's one case of a shared nickname. Jesus gave to both of them the nickname Boanerges, which is kind of weird in English, but back then it meant sons of thunder, which sounds much cooler. It's much better. Sons of Thunder. It's likely a reflection of their character. They're eager, enthusiastic, intensely devoted, boisterous, impulsive. After Jesus leaves, though, the story of these two really diverges because James becomes the first of the twelve to die. And John, he's the last of the twelve to die. He has a long, rich life. James, not so much. It may have even been James's loud character that led him to be the first martyr among the twelve. Now we get to the second group of four. So that's the first four, Peter, Andrew, James, John. The second four is Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. And in all of these lists, Philip is always the first guy of the second group of four. He always heads the list of the second group of four. And Philip is known as a bringer. When you see Philip in the Bible, he's always bringing people to Jesus. He brings Nathaniel to Jesus. He brings a group of Greek people to Jesus. And speaking of Nathaniel, that's just another name for Bartholomew, by the way. That's his other name. Bartholomew and Philip, we always see them together. Some think they may have been brothers as well. Possible, but we really don't know. Matthew and Thomas come next. They're like a pair as well. And we already learned about Matthew in in Mark Mark chapter 2. Matthew was actually his nickname. 
His real name being, remember, Levi. But presumably Jesus gave him the name Matthew, meaning gift from God. Which is ironic because as a tax collector, he was known for stealing from people. But he followed Jesus and Jesus changed him. Thomas, on the other hand, is totally unknown in the first three Gospels. You read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you won't learn anything about Thomas. It's not until you get to John where you learn a lot about Thomas. He's, he's, he's there much more. We find his nickname, Didymus, the twin. He's the guy who, he did not see Jesus resurrected at first. The others did. And so he said, I will not believe until I touch the scars on his hands. You know the story, Doubting Thomas. kind of gets a bad rap, but anyway. Jesus shows up and says, okay, here you go. Touch my scars. And without actually, therefore, needing to touch them, Thomas gives us one of the greatest confessions of Jesus in the Bible. John 20, 28, he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Now we get to the final group of four. The final four, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot. There's another James, there's another Simon, like the first four, but these are different. James, son of Alphaeus, he's always the first guy in the list of these final four. But he's also the one disciple we know almost nothing about. It's a guy we just, there's just nothing said about him. James, son of Alphaeus, that's pretty much it. He's totally in the background, but he must have been faithful to God. Really, though, it's okay. That's okay, because you know what? Discipleship is not about our glory. And our legacy, it's about God's glory. So he did what he was supposed to do. Thaddeus, next, is a man with many names. He goes by Judas, son of James, which can get a little confusing because there's another Judas and there's another James. But he is Judas, son of James. There's also another Simon, and to distinguish him from Simon Peter, he is called Simon the Zealot. The Zealot, which could be a reference to his zealous passion for God, but most think he was a member of the Zealot Party, this Jewish group. And they were known for their extreme hatred of foreign rule. They hated the Romans. And the Zealots, they actually believed that physical violence was the answer. And that's the answer to overthrow Rome. We have to... Uh, get violent and, and, and kill the Romans. And many of them did. And last, of course, on the list comes Judas Iscariot. Peter is the first of every list of the 12, and Judas is the last on every list of the 12. And he has his own nickname, only it didn't come from Jesus. He kind of earned it by his actions. He is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. That's his nickname. And that word betray literally means to hand over, and that's what he did. He handed Jesus over to his murderers. What's really striking, though, is that Jesus chose Judas. He chose him. And even after a night of prayer, seeking the Father's will, Jesus still concluded Judas was to be one of the twelve. It was not an accident. That was not a mistake or an oversight. It was determined long ago that Jesus would meet his atoning death through a betrayal. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, Luke chapter 22, verses 21 through 22, he said, Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. 
But woe unto the man by whom he is betrayed. You catch that? We talked about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility a little bit earlier. And Judas gives us a perfect picture of how the two come together. Do you think God holds Judas responsible for his actions? Of course he does. Woe unto the man by whom he was betrayed. He will be judged. He is being judged. However, this was still a part of God's plan. Many are called. Few are chosen. Judas was called, but he was never, of course, a true believer. Still, through his own independent choices and actions, he chose, but he fulfilled God's predetermined plan. They just They sit right side by side. Like Peter later preached in Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, but he was nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. So who is responsible for the death of Jesus, God or man? And the answer is both. It was God's plan, but his blood is on their hands. And the Jews and the Romans and Judas, they're responsible, and they will have to answer for their actions. Judas, we know, was especially hardened. Let me get this. During the Last Supper, you all remember that this, this scene. During the Last Supper, Judas had already been paid the 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus by the Jews. Remember that? And so who knows? He may have even had them in his pocket at the Last Supper. There were, the coins were jangling around. And during that time, Jesus told his disciples that one of you who is with me will betray me. And Judas had the audacity to say back to Jesus, it is not I, Rabbi, is it? It's not me. He had the money in his pocket. And he still said that. I mean, it's the height of blindness. Also later, G- Judas would you know, leave, go out, and he would join the crowd, the same crowd that used to follow Jesus. Now they were wanting to kill him. Judas went, joined the crowd, and he led the crowd to capture Jesus. And remember what he did next? When the crowd was there, he walked up to Jesus, embraced him, and gave him the kiss of a disciple as if he, had, he was doing nothing wrong. It was like, hey, how you doing? As if he was doing nothing wrong. If there is ever a pattern of false discipleship, it would come from Judas. Of course, we're going to learn a lot more about him later at the end of Mark. His name, in a way, stands out in the list. But here, though, the focus really is on the 12 overall. There's a greater significance to what, it, to what Jesus is doing with these 12. In fact, let's wrap things up now by identifying, lastly, the significance. We've seen the setting, the summons, the task, the 12. Now returning, finishing with the significance. The significance. And there's two points here. The first point of significance comes from whom Jesus did not choose. You know what's significant here? First, those whom he did not choose. Like I mentioned earlier, his choosing of the 12 was at the same time a rejection of Israel's existing leadership. It was not an oversight that no scribes or Pharisees or Sadducees or priests were chosen among his 12. He purposely did not select any of the religious elite because this was a rejection of their system and an indictment of their guilt. Their system, Judaism, was bankrupt. 
Their leaders were false teachers. They were not fit to lead God's people. And their system could not save anyone. So that's why Jesus sought to dismantle their system piece by piece. Do you recognize this? He said their law must go. I'm not talking about the Old Testament, but their man-made laws. They had to go. Their temple must go. It was supposed to be a house of prayer, but they made it into a robber's den. And their leaders must go. They were wicked shepherds who only fattened themselves off of the sheep. And so now it's time for something new. Jesus comes to bring something new. First, he brings a new covenant. Jesus will inaugurate this new covenant with his blood, and this covenant will actually provide for the salvation of the people. Finally, truly provide for their salvation. There's also to be a new community, a new community, a new covenant, people of God. This is the church, the church being the called out ones, those called out from the crowd to follow Jesus. There is to be a new testament, this is a new set of instructions from God, a new word to guide this new community in following Jesus. And when you pull all this together, you see why there must also be a new leadership. A new leadership to help usher in all of these changes. I mean, look, there's a new covenant to announce, a new community to lead, a new testament to write. A new leadership is needed for all of these things. And so this is why Jesus chose the 12. And furthermore, there's a reason Jesus chose 12 and not 11 and not 13 or not 30. He chose 12 for a reason. And also there's a reason why the apostles later, they felt the need to replace Judas with Matthias and bring their number back up to 12. And why is that? It's because this new community is like a new Israel. And its leaders are like the 12 patriarchs. Now let me be clear, the church is not to be equated with Israel. That's not the case. But the church is like a new Israel, a new people of God, a new covenant community of God. Like Ephesians 2.15 says, the church is the one new man, where Jew and Greek, they come together as one. Like Ephesians 2.19 says, the church is God's household now, and if that house is to stand, it needs a solid foundation. And Ephesians 2.20 says, that foundation is the apostles. They're, that, they're the cement foundation, with Christ being the cornerstone of this new church. So the first point of significance here comes from those whom Jesus did not choose. His choosing of the twelve was a condemnation of Israel's leaders. They didn't know God. They didn't know how to get to God. Later, Jesus would say of them, they travel far and wide to make one convert. And when they do, they make him twice as much a son of hell as they are. Matthew 23. It's a stunning condemnation of these leaders. They accuse Jesus of being possessed by the devil, but in reality, they are just children of their father, the devil. They have rejected him. He, in turn, rejects them from leading God's true people. We will see this even more as Mark chapter 3 ends. And these leaders commit the unforgivable sin. That's coming up in Mark chapter 3. There's a second point of significance, though, to draw on here. 
So I'm being a little bit more practical for us. The first lesson comes from those whom he did not choose. The second comes from those whom he did choose. And just who did Jesus choose? The answer is no one special. No one special at all. He chose very common people. The Pharisees actually had a word for these guys called Amharats. It just means people of the land. These were the, the uneducated, the common people, your, your blue-collar workers, not very religious, didn't follow the law that closely, weren't worthy of much attention. But that's who Jesus chose, these very common people. I mean, does that strike you? Just think about these guys who he chose. No formal training, no education, no degrees, no experience. They were not noble. They weren't rich. They had no special skills. To the contrary, they displayed great fear and lapses of faith. They argued. They made mistakes. They were prideful. They were selfish. They were slow learners. Walking to a Catholic church, you're going to see these 12 guys memorialized in stained glass windows and statues, revered as holy saints and even prayed to. But you know what? kind of seems like they were, I don't know, Sinners? I think Jesus chose 12 sinners. Technically, that's all he had to choose from. But unlike the religious leaders, these, these disciples, they saw their sin and they saw their need for a Savior. They came to believe in Jesus as God and Savior from their heart and they followed him, all except Judas. And they were redeemed. That's what makes them special. That's how they were useful to the Lord. They were redeemed by the Lord. See, that's their secret. It's not them. It's not about who they were. It's about him and who he made them into. Later on, after Jesus left, the apostles are doing their early ministry. They're before the Sanhedrin, which is that ruling council of Jews, same people who killed Jesus. And these Jews, they're amazed and bewildered by these apostles. They, just, they don't get it. Because here are these men, they're untrained, they're uneducated, they don't know the law, they didn't study under these rabbis. They're just fishermen. But they were speaking with such power and authority and knowledge, working wonders. I mean, how, how can this be? What's their secret? And Acts chapter 4, 13 says, Then they recognized them as having been with Jesus. There's the secret. That, that's it. They were with Jesus. And he taught them and made them into more than any school can. So there's a lesson here on discipleship that really is for all of us. These 12 provide the pattern of all discipleship. And we find that you know God is not looking for the special, for the elite, the most religious, the best of the best. It's not who he's looking for. Before God... No one's special. There's none righteous, none worthy, none deserving. Before God, we're all like broken clay vessels. And so instead, God is looking for those who recognize this. He only has sinners to choose from, so that's not the issue. Those who recognize this, those who know how broken they are, those who are desperate for God to fix them, to redeem them. That's who he's looking for. When Jesus chose these 12, he knew they were all broken. He knew what he was getting. He was not surprised by their failures. 
But it wasn't about what they could be on their own, what they could bring to the table. It was about what he could do through them and what he could make them into. And the same is true today for you. It's not about what you can bring to God, what you can do for God. It's what he can make you into and and enable you to do for him. God calls you to salvation in Christ. And as you respond to that call, he knows your failures, your faults, your sins. It's not to excuse them, but he knows who you are and how broken you are. Hopefully you know it as well. But do not mistakenly believe that you must make yourself worthy before God can accept you. I've got to fix myself up. Then God will finally want me and accept me. He knows what he's getting into when he calls you. Rather, God's business is to find broken vessels and to transform them into something useful. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 1, 26-27 says? Paul writes, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. What that means is, if you're a believer, you are a fool and you are weak, but in the best possible way. Because it's the only, those are the only ones who are thereby redeemed and healed and restored by God. So as you think about the 12 and their choosing, you should be encouraged at God's gracious calling. Because if he called them, he can call anyone. His calling is based on his grace, not on our merit. And you should be thankful. There is nothing we can bring to God on our own. We have nothing to provide to him. We have no righteousness to bring. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. There's none righteous. You can't bring him anything. But he still calls you. He still transforms you and heals you. You should, you should be thankful for that. You should be really thankful for that. And you should, therefore, serve him out of that thankfulness. And that's the great takeaway as a disciple. If you're here, you are a disciple. You follow Jesus. You're encouraged. You're thankful. But you want to serve. You want to follow Jesus and do everything that means. Why? Not because it's, it's going to earn some more favor or help God accept you. No, that, that's not possible, but because you're, you're thankful. Look what he has done for me. Look how he pieced me back together and forgiven me and restored me. How can I not want to serve him? How can I not want to give him my entire life? So as you look at the 12, just learn and realize there's really nothing in life so fulfilling so meaningful, so worthy as to walk with Jesus your entire life. And I pray we can do that together. Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect on this word about these 12, these 12 men, and we see your calling, your hand upon their lives, we, we know that there are none worthy, there are none righteous before you. We all stand sinners, condemned, lost, and blind until you call us. But we can give thanks that your call is not based on our merit, for then none would be called. Your call is not based on our goodness. But you simply call by grace, according to your choosing, and as we respond, we can be saved. 
I pray anyone, for anyone here who has not responded to you that they would believe upon Jesus. Anyone who believes can be saved. And I pray they do that and they follow. And they take seriously what that means. When Jesus calls us to follow, it's not a small thing. We forsake our entire way of old life and we follow him, picking up our cross daily. Lord, help us to take seriously this calling and commission to follow and then to preach the word, to live lives reflecting the gospel and sharing the gospel with those we encounter. This is a serious business, a business we are not worthy of, but you make us worthy of. You enable us to do this work, so do that work in us, Lord. And may we be faithful to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We always thank you and praise you for your grace. That's why we're here. That's why we love you and we'll always follow you. Looking forward to be with you forever. It's your name we pray. Amen.